I'm pleased to welcome here celebrity biographer Jerry Oppenheimer. Jerry talks about some folks in his new book, The Kardashians. Good morning, Jerry Oppenheimer. Morning, Peter. Thank you for having me. My you know, pleasure. I was listening to your last guest, and uh, this is a perfect uh, transition <laughs> because we're dealing with probably uh, some of the most narcissistic, exhibitionistic, and shallow people who have made, it, made millions of dollars and uh, build an empire with uh, their reality TV show and all the products and sponsors they have, the Kardashians. Famous for being famous, which yeah. is, I think, a bizarre thing. Well, you know, it's happened before. In fact, uh, uh, the first famous for fa uh, for being famous uh, celebrities in our current contemporary era were the were the Hiltons. You know, Paris Hilton and her sister Nikki and that whole crowd. And uh, what's odd in all of this is that uh, Kim Kardashian. Uh, was close friends with Paris Hilton. Uh, Kim's mother, the famous uh, momager, as she's called, Chris uh, Kardashian-Jenner, and Kathy Hilton, Paris Hilton's mother, were close friends. And I deal in the book with how Kim earned her uh, fame and infamy with a, uh, um, you know, a porn tape just like her friend uh, Paris Hilton had become famous and infamous. And uh, Kris Jenner, just like Paris's mother, was behind the whole operation. Uh, you know, Kris knew a lot of people around Hollywood, had a lot of friends in the business, saw how famous and uh, wealthy on her own Paris had become <clears throat> doing, uh, you know, a, a sex tape. And... Uh, promoted the fact that uh, Kim could do the same thing. Chris Jenner pimped out her daughter? Excuse me? Chris Jenner pimped out her daughter? Well, you know, uh, I, I can't say that. Chris Jenner saw it as a business opportunity for her daughter and a way to make money and a way to gain fame. However, when I uh, went back to find out the roots of Chris Jenner and her, where she came from, what kind of family she came from, et cetera, et cetera, I interviewed uh, her best friend in high school, where she grew up in uh, San Diego area, Claremont High School. And uh, that friend told me on the record, long interviews with her, as I have had with many, many others for this book, that she thought uh, Chris's mother had been pimping her out. That's the term the, the friend used, because she knew at that point in time when Chris was 16 that her mother was taking her to places where she could reach, uh, meet rich guys. And uh, I'm not saying that she was, you know, advertising for sexual services or anything like that, but the, the, uh, the friend of hers used that term to kind of underscore the fact that Chris's only interest at that time with her mother's good housekeeping seal of approval was to find a rich guy and marry rich. And, you know, by the time she was 17 years old, she was already involved with a... Uh, professional golfer by the name of Cesar Sanudo, a Mexican-American guy on the PGA Tour who was at least uh, 12 years older than her. She soon moved in with him. And uh, of all people who broke up that relationship was Robert Kardashian, the patriarch of today's Kardashian, uh, famed Kardashian family, because uh, 
Robert began an affair with Chris and uh, was caught uh, basically in bed with uh, with uh, Kardashian by the, <laughs> the professional golfer with whom uh, Chris was then involved with as a as basically uh, not even 20 years old at that point in time. So it's been quite a ride, and um, uh, you know, I, I this is my 13th book, and I thought you know. This Kardashian family has had a decade of rea reality TV dominance. They've earned, you know, a, a fortune with their exhibitionism and narcissism and banality. Uh, that I thought this would be a good topic for a, an in-depth biography. You know, staying away from all the uh, gossip, tabloid gossip, and uh, you know, uh, celebrity magazine. Uh, BS that's been out there for years and years. And what I discovered was, you know, major revelations about who these people really are, where they came from, and how they do business, and what the future is of the Kardashians. And that's an interesting topic in today's age because uh, once that Kardashian show ends, Chris already had, Chris Jenner already has a <clears throat> future planned out for herself and uh, I think that'll come to a surprise and to a shocker to some of uh, some of the Kardashian detractors because she's looking at a p potentially political future amazing amazing but the people said the same thing when Donald Trump ran exactly and, and what I deal with in, in my book which is really in the epilogue of, of, of my book <clears throat> is that last year during the uh, presidential debates Chris Jenner was uh, you know, watching them, she saw Trump, you know, coming out of the same life and world that she she is now in, which is reality television, he with The Apprentice, she with The Kardashian Show, reality television, uh, and she said to her advisors, you know, I have the same DNA as he does, I have millions and millions of followers on social media, women love me. African-American audience, which Trump didn't have, uh, supports the uh, Kardashians, fi finds them interesting because of all the kind of black culture that's part of their their programming. Um, and she feels she can do it. You know, uh, close advisors to her told me that she's told them that, you know, she might enter a congressional race, she might enter a senatorial race, and she even has uh, dreams or fantasies, or maybe it's reality, of uh, possibly a White House run. And, and what she basically told the people I interviewed is, um, you know, if Trump can do it, I can do it. How easy was it, though, to research the book? Did people cooperate? Well, you yeah. Know? You know, uh, I interviewed literally dozens of people for this book. It's an unauthorized biography. When I decided to do this project, I contacted... Uh, the Kardashians and said, you know, I'm going to be doing a, an in-depth biography of your lives. You know, this isn't going to be a fan magazine book. Uh, I do hard-hitting books. Uh, you know, my, my books in the past have been about the Hiltons and the, the Clintons and Martha Stewart and uh, Bernie Madoff and a whole slew of very famous in-the-news people. And they never got back to me. So uh, I figured, you know, I will just move forward and 
uh, talk to as many people as I can who have been in their circle going back to the days when they were growing up in uh, in California, Robert Kardashian, Chris Houghton, that was her maiden name, and um, and the current slew of uh, Kardashians, the, the children of the matriarch and the patriarch, Chris and Robert. And I got great... <coughs> Excuse me. I got great cooperation and uh, incredible revelations from the people I, I spoke with. They, they were all very candid. They are on the record, and I think uh, you know, if any of your listeners uh, decide to take a look at this book, they're going to be surprised because of all the millions and millions of words that have been written in the tabloids and in the celebrity magazines, and having watched ten years of their programming on. Uh, you know, the e-network, uh, I think people are going to be surprised about what's really behind the Kardashians. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 <clears throat> WIP. My name's Peter Solomon, going on through till the 8 o'clock hour. Mr. Oppenheimer, I need to take a break and run a few commercials to pay the bills around here. So if you'll stay with me, we'll be back in just a bit. And we're back. My guest, Jerry Oppenheimer. His new celebrity biography, The Kardashians. Jerry, I would imagine, though, the Kardashians have your picture in their office with a big red X through it. I, I would assume so. I, I've already seen uh, the book was published uh, this past week, and uh, I saw online that uh, someone had contacted them and uh, Apparently, uh, Chris Jenner is uh, very upset about the revelations in the book, secrets that she has kept for years and years. Um, one of the one of the more interesting areas of the, of the book that I found in, in doing my reporting over a two-year period was Robert Kardashian, the patriarch, the father of today's uh, famous uh, Kim and Chloe and Courtney and Rob. Um, you know, I, I wanted to find out who he was. When he, he passed away in the early 2000s and uh, of uh, a form of throat cancer at the age of 59, uh, linked in many ways uh, from people I spoke to, uh, to the stress and anxiety when he was involved with the O.J. murder trial. O.J. Simpson was his best friend. Uh, also the, uh, the fact that uh, his wife, Chris had cheated on him, leading to a divorce. All of that has had great impact on his physical and emotional well-being, and friends thought that might have led to <coughs> the cancer that he uh, eventually died from. But I went, wanted to find out who he, he really was, who the family was. And one of the discoveries I made was that <coughs> the Kardashians had made their money in the early days in the meatpacking industry in uh, in Los Angeles, they were one of the big. They owned one of the biggest meatpacking companies. Um, most of the major supermarkets in Southern California carried meat coming from the Kardashian Meatpacking Company. And uh, what I discovered was that the company was very corrupt. Uh, in the mid '70s, they were <clears throat> involved in bribing. U.S. government meat inspectors to give them a better grade on their meats in exchange for payoffs. And uh, Robert Kardashian's brother, Tom Kardashian, who is the uncle uh, uncle of uh, 
today's famous Kardashians and Bruce and Chris Chris Jenner's uh, former brother-in-law um, was indicted, convicted, made a plea deal uh, for basically bribing these meat inspectors and uh, served 20 years under a dark cloud. He never went to prison because of the plea deal he made. But uh, in the early 90s, he actually received a, a full and unconditional pardon from, of all people, President George H.W. Bush. Why Bush, in the last days of his presidency, gave a pardon to Kardashian, who was, you know, relatively an unknown person at that time, is still a mystery. Bush has uh, refused to comment on why Kardashian was among just a few pardons he had given out before he left the presidency. In any case, uh, that I think is, is interesting because Chris Jenner, who married Bruce Jenner after uh, uh, Robert Kardashian divorced her after she was caught cheating in their relationship, um, never, never made public in all the uh, in all the words of interviews she's given to the fan magazines and in her own uh, memoir that she wrote and that was published in 2011. Anything about that kind of sordid history that existed in the uh, Kardashian family's uh, background. Uh, and that's just one of many, many revelations in, in the book that I think people who are either fans or detractors of the Kardashians and may want to know who they are beyond what they see on the uh, reality TV show or read in the gossip columns or in the uh, tabloids uh, are going to be surprised about. Now, I confess, Jerry, I confess that while I'm not a Kardashian fan by any stretch of the imagination, when I saw the novel The Doll's House by the three daughters on the Reduce for Quick Sale table at Barnes Noble, I snapped it up because I was curious. And it wasn't so bad. Um, did they really write that stuff? No. No, no. <laughs> you know, beyond their ability to chatter and chatter and gossip and fight with each other and have their cat fights on television. You know, they, they, they have professionals handling all of that and they, they can pay them well because they've become very rich. You know, Robert Kardashian, the father, was an entrepreneurial kind of guy. I mean, he's best known as being one of the uh, lawyers on the O.J. Simpson dream team. But in fact, he, before that all came about and his buddy O.J. asked him to read the letter that O.J. left behind on the day of the famous white Bronco chase, as you may recall. Um, he was really an entrepreneurial guy and he, he got into a lot of different businesses and some of them with O.J. Simpson himself, none of them very successful, but he was always pushing to, uh, to make a bundle. And uh, and he did in only one one instance. So I think uh, you know I interviewed uh, Tom Kardashian. I interviewed close friends in their circle growing up, and uh, as adults and professionals. And um, they, these people told me that that Robert Kardashian would be thrilled and proud at the at the incredible fortune his kids have made and his, his ex-wife has made 
from uh, their reality TV life and all the sponsors they have, but would not be thrilled about the uh, way they made it, particularly being, really being launched with Chris's, uh, with Kim's, uh, I'm sorry, with Kim's uh, uh, porn tape that she made, which kind of launched her uh, her fame and infamy, uh, you know, shortly before uh, Ryan Seacrest discovered the Kardashians and put them into that reality TV show. What do you think the fascination is that the public has with the Kardashians? <clears throat> you know, that's a magic formula <laughs> that uh, I think every producer in television who goes for this kind of programming is, is looking for. Uh, you know, I, I, th- their, their main audience are young women. Yeah, and I'm not actually young girls. I mean, it's like 12, 10 to 18. And, uh, you know, we're in an entirely different culture today. And, you know, the way the, the Kardashian girls on TV dress and their sexual exploits uh, all has become very attractive to this young audience and even their young mothers. And, uh, you know, they, they just hit a nerve, you know, the, the, that show, which started 10 years ago, came at a very interesting time. It was the uh, beginning of the Facebook generation, beginning of uh, social media, the explosion of social media. Kids today have their phones and their iPads and their laptop computers, and they can watch and read and all and, and see all their all of the Kardashians' uh, wildness and read about them. And uh, it just touched that nerve, and they were very lucky, and they were in the right place at the right time. I don't think there's anything magical about what they have, and, you know, most of it is very banal and shallow. But, you know, I think we live in a banal and shallow world today. All right. Um, Of the daughters, the one that I find the most interesting is Courtney. She's the most interesting because she seems the sanest. What do you seems thinking? what? I'm the sorry. sanest. I'm missing the word. The sanest, the most normal. Oh, the most normal. Well, you know, maybe, maybe not. I mean, she had a long relationship with a guy, had a couple of kids with him. They've never really married. Uh, she is the only one of the uh, Kardashian girls who actually has a college education. She went to a uh, uh, party school in Arizona and got some kind of a... Um, you know, meaningless degree, but she she did pursue that. Um, one of the one of the Kardashian girls, besides Kim, who has the most fame and generates the most uh, money from that fame and infamy, is Chloe. And for for a number of years now, especially in the tabloids and the celebrity magazines, there have been a lot of rumors about whether Chloe is uh, actually. Robert Kardashian's biological daughter. I mean, there have been rumors, published rumors, uh, that Chloe uh, uh, is O.J. Simpson's daughter, that O.J. Simpson had an affair with, with Chris Kardashian Jenner. Um, but I investigated that because it, it's been kind of a major uh, point in the uh, Kardashian's background. And what I discovered was uh, <clears throat> Chloe appears to not actually have been Robert Kardashian's uh, biological daughter. 
that there was another man involved that Chris might have been having an affair with someone else outside of marriage, which he actually did later on. That, that is publicly known now. And uh, <clears throat> I interviewed the uh, minister who married and officiated at the marriage of Chris and Robert Kardashian, has been a longtime friend of those of uh, Robert's and, and Chris's, uh, saw the marriage when it started, saw it as it broke up because of Chris's uh, uh, cheating. And he told me that uh, before Robert Kardashian passed on, he had told the minister, who's on the record, in the book, and in many places because he's a fascinating character himself, that uh, Robert had confided in him that Chloe was not his daughter, that uh, he, Robert Kardashian, and, and his, his then-wife, Chris, were not having an intimate sexual relationship in the period of time prior to when Chloe was conceived. This, again, is what Robert told the minister. And... Um, but Robert had decided that he was going to love this child as his own, he was going to raise her as his own, uh, that he didn't want a scandal at that point in time to become public. And um, uh, so, you know, I also spoke with other members of uh, Robert Kardashian's and Chris's circle who said that he also told, confided in them, close confidants, that, that Chloe was not his. Now, of course, Chris... Jenner and Chloe and other members of that family have uh, come forward and, and denied the rumors that existed before my book came out that Chloe was not the biological uh, daughter. And they have uh, pointed to a, a legal document that Robert had signed at one point claiming that he had four biological children, which would have been <coughs> included Chloe. But I interviewed the lawyer who was involved in that document, and he said he didn't even remember Robert signing it, had no knowledge of it. But they've used that document to underscore their contention that uh, that Chloe is uh, Robert's daughter. The biggest surprise you found when researching the book? You know, <clears throat> I interviewed literally dozens of people for this book, uh, Peter, and I came away from every interview with my jaw dropping lower and lower. You know, one revelation after another. And uh, there's not one that I can point to and say this is the big blockbuster because articles have already been written about my book and they have one bullet after another <laughs> listing the various uh, disclosures and uh, shocking and explosive uh, uh, things I found about the Kardashians. So there, there really isn't one. I mean, one that 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 when when I came when I came across it in my research was the uh, the corruption and uh, criminal element that existed in the uh, Kardashian uh, family business. I thought, wow, this is amazing. All the all the words that have been written about these people, and no one. Not one journalist, not one reporter who's profiled the Kardashians, interviewed Kris Jenner, basically for publicity purposes, ever found any of this out. All right. And finally, Jerry Oppenheimer, who's next? Who's the next book going to be? 
Peter, if you have some good ideas, you know, I'd be most willing to listen. <laughs> it's not it's not an easy uh, it's not an easy decision to make there. You know, right now I don't see any any personage out there that that is uh, worthy of my spending two or three years looking into their lives. You know, I've written about Martha Stewart. I've written about Rock Hudson. I've written about Madoff and the Clintons and the Hiltons and uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And uh, one of my mo most recent books was a biography. And I think we, you even interviewed me about this, the uh, Johnson & Johnson right. Band-Aid dynasty family. Uh, but right now I'm, I'm kind of... Uh, putting together a list of potential subjects, but I haven't decided on one as yet. Well, it's always the Trump family. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, that's been pitched to me, and I've talked to uh, my agent and editors about that, that subject, and I was thinking at one point of Ivanka Trump, because when, you know, when he, when Donald Trump was first elected, there was a lot of a lot of stories in the in the media about Ivanka going to play a major role in that administration. Well, it didn't really happen, and uh, you know I think she's just hanging around and uh, modeling her uh, her beautiful wardrobe every morning as she goes out jogging or heading to the White House office, but isn't having very much influence there. So um, she uh, had to cross her off the list. Well, whatever it is, I'm going to look forward to it because it's always enlightening. When you take a look at a celebrity and the man behind the curtain, I appreciate woman. it. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Um, Jerry Oppenheimer, your new book, The Kardashians. And you're listening to Conversation here on going on through till the 8 o'clock hour. My name's Peter Solomon. And finally, to end our day together, a good read, something exciting, and a whole lot more. Be back after these messages. Break over in time for the final interview this morning here on a special edition of Conversation as we welcome author Eric Anderson, his new book where he blends fact and fiction, that new book, Osiris. Good morning, Eric Anderson. Good morning, Peter. Glad to be here. Thank you to have, Thank you for being willing to be here. Um, Osiris, as I recall, wasn't he the Egyptian god of death? Yeah, he is indeed. The, the title is appropriate for the text, but... Uh... We're doing is putting together a series. Of, I just finished book two that's going to be coming forward. Uh, so we look at Osiris, and we go to Anubis, and then finally look at Horus. And it's a close-up look uh, with my, my personal background thrown in, if you will, uh, at where we believe the Islamic State is headed over the next five, ten years. And where do you see it headed? I, the future is not bright, particularly if you live in France. Uh, suffice it to say, without ruining the plot line. Is it fact? Is it fiction? I, what I've done is I've blended a, a bit of the two. Uh, what I tell people is that you're looking at what we would call historical fiction, where it, as, I, as I proceed apace, you're getting actual factual material that's tossed in based upon my background and what you're actually reading in the headlines. And then it's a, a go back and look at, and, I, and this is what I've been doing, going back and looking at the history of the rise of the Islamic Empire, if you will, back from 623 to 750 A.D., and, and just how far these guys managed to come over the course of a, a remarkable about 100 years. Uh, they, they had at one point the same amount of territory that the Romans had managed to conquer over a 400-year period. Uh, so you, you've got an impressive history to work from, 
and you can see that there's some bitterness in, in the way that the Arab world feels that it's been treated in the, the intervening thousand years. And so here's, here's the, the act of revenge that's coming forward, and that's particularly true in the case of Osiris. This is where I place people on the precipice, and I, I, you know, I hope to give readers a, a sleepless night as they start through this thing. <laughs> that says that the potential is certainly here. The, I don't come up with any uh, imaginary weapon systems or any, anything that can't already be done today. And it's a matter of simply implementing the plot that's standing there. And, and trust me, there are people who are smart enough to actually carry forth the tasks that I've laid out within the book. That's kind of scary. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, that, that's a response I get fairly frequently because it, if you sit down and think about it, uh, the, the actual processes that are being stepped through are not beyond the capabilities of your average technician, nor are the tactics that are being employed. And this this is where you, you sit back and you say, where can humankind really screw up? And that's where I've taken us. Is the, the Here's the problem that you have at, at hand, and here are the people who may be able to help out on it. And this is where my, my two protagonists come in, Agent Moore, who's a Army a Marine Corps E-9, and then this poor army major who's trying to work with him at the same time, and, and they're left pretty much to fend for themselves as they move forward into this mess. Now, but you mix fact and fiction into what the genre I think calls faction, and you suggest that ISIS can pull it off, but yet we hear on the news ISIS is losing ground, their fighters are being killed or captured, they're going the other direction. What's going on? Yeah, the, you know, the thing that disturbs me most here is that the reporting is based upon sort of a, a Western concept that says if you take away the territory, the adversary has lost their capability to wage war. And that isn't what we discover in working with the Islamic State. You know, the, the processes that should cause people to lose sleep are the lone wolf attacks that we see transpiring both in Europe and certainly within the United States, where individuals have been motivated through the propaganda that ISIS perpetrates on the Internet, and then through, as we've now discovered and the New York Times has reported on to, to a limited degree, the fact that they continue to control these individuals, the lone wolves, via the context they have on the Internet, and they're not actually random events, but rather there is some planning associated to continue exercising the message despite the fact that they may lose the, the physical capital that they're sitting in today. And I, I don't know that losing Raqqa... Uh, Iraq is the city in, in Syria where the, the Islamic State has located its capital. I'm not certain that losing Raqqa will actually diminish the message. In fact, you may find that it, it helps to further spread the mayhem because now they have no reason to be concerned about taking care of borders, whether they can go forth and wreak havoc everywhere. Uh, and so I, I would not rest on, on our laurels simply because we managed to drive them out of a particular place. Now you suggest France is going to be in trouble if we're not careful. I, you know, the, you know, if you go back and you look at history, uh, the, the height of the of the Arab of the Arab conquest uh, managed to reach the, the gates of Madrid, uh, and so they had driven up the Iberian Peninsula and managed to push people back to the walled cities that surrounded uh, just outside of Madrid and getting up to the French border. Uh, today, there are five million uh, Islamic immigrants living within. Uh, the neighborhoods of Paris. Uh, Paris is essentially an island surrounded by a sea of immigrants, and it's immigrants who have come out of the Middle East. And the French have not been uh, the kindest 
of essentially colonial masters and they allowed people to move in. And they've treated this population as second-class citizenry, which is why the, you know, Paris has become this target or a magnet, if you will, for terrorist activity. And in my comment has been to people over time, what ISIS may be able to accomplish, because they, they have not just been stuck within the Syrian-Iraqi environment, but they are also very active within the Libyan. We think that there's some activity now taking place within Egypt, and that it is a short hop and a skip across into France, and you, if you've motivated these sleeper cells, I would be very disturbed if I was the French government at this point. And so the, you know, my hint is things could get much worse before they get any better. What's your worst-case scenario? Do you have one? My worst-case scenario is that the you find that ISIS in the, about the next five years manages to, one, leap into the Libyan fray, because Libya has turned into a nightmare. You see conglomeration of 120 tribes, none of whom really like each other. Uh, they've divided the country in half, and they've created an environment that in some, some instances looks very much like what we found in Afghanistan when Bin Laden was doing his training and setting up al-Qaeda. And so you, you migrate your leadership and your forces out of the, the target range that Syria has become, and you move them into Libya, where you have a, a larger space to operate within in a much more chaotic environment. Uh, not to say that, that Syria is anything that somebody would call civilized. Then as they, as they develop that plan, what you have sitting immediately adjacent, of course, to Libya is the mess that is now Egypt. You know, we, we've given over the Egyptian governance to the, the military, much to the chagrin of the Egyptian, pol- the Egyptian pol- population. And you can see where there is space for ISIS to grow and, and foment discontent, discontent within that environment. And, of course, Tunisia sits on a very precarious edge. They, you know, they may or may not have resolved their problems because this is the home of Arab Spring. Uh, and they, they managed to vote out the, what they called the moderate uh, Islamic government that moved in uh, when they, they took over the, the uh, state from Ben Ali. But it, it's, it's ripe for picking as well. And so you have sort of a, a new heart to the, the uh, Islamic state in the Maghreb. And, and from there, it is a very short leap, given the refugee flow that's taken place both into Italy and Greece, and then what the French have already acquired, to to continue to expand your environment and to continue to expand your empire. I, I think, frankly, you you have conditions ripe for what I I have argued in a, a number of formats. It's not terrorism, but a second revolution. And this is the revolution of the Islamic world. What do you think it means for America? What it means for America is that you're going to confront an environment, particularly as a politician and as a law enforcement official, where you have young men and women who had been raised in middle-class neighborhoods, uh, would appear to come from successful households, and suddenly become uh, instruments of terror within our environment. Uh, And the other thing that it means for America is that the operating environment that we're we're having to confront not only within Afghanistan, because the Islamic State has now migrated into Afghanistan, but the, the operating environment that we find within the Middle East and then we find within Europe is going to become increasingly hostile. Um, I would hearken back to the days when, in the 1970s when the, the German terrorists were at the height of their activity. And it was a very unfriendly place for American policymakers and the American military to try to figure out how to operate. And this is what we have forthcoming. And the current administration is not making this any easier. If you, you know, they, when they when they finally take their bore sighted off of North Korea, 
I think the next term will be to you know, poke sharp sticks at the Islamic State, and, and that is only going to further aggravate the situation. I, you know, the, the name poke calling and finger pointing between our good president and Kim Jong-un uh, will be minor compared to the blowback that will happen if he conducts the same type of activity with Mr. al-Baghdadi, or as they now call him, Khalif Ibrahim. You paint a very dismal picture. Uh, you know, I, I tend to be an optimist by trade. Um, I'm, a, I'm a global sailor, so I, you know, I, I always hope that I'm going to go into the right environment and come out alive. Uh, however, when I look at the political state of being, I am uh, less sure of where we are headed. It, it certainly here you have it, and I've been trying to explain to people. You know, we, we talk about the Chinese hundred years of humiliation, which is what they, the Chinese refer to as the period between 1835, the start of the Opium Wars, and 1949, when Mao takes control of mainland China. The, the Islamic world sometimes refers to what they have encountered as the thousand years of shame. Uh, from the days in, in 1098 when we start the first crusades until the very present time. And now there is a chance to avenge that shame. And uh, you have a, a demographic use bulge that's existing within the Middle East, and you have the tools, uh, the, the modern warfare equipment that we've disseminated across the planet, and, and the leadership resident within the Islamic world, particularly in the form of the, the guys who are sitting atop the Islamic State, that suggests this could really be bad karma for those of us sitting in the West feeling fat, dumb, and comfortable. Mm. And I'd so, like to so, say, go ahead. Go ahead, Peter. I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Eric. Please finish your thought. I, I, my my comment would be: don't don't sleep too heavily. I mean, this is this is one that needs constant attention, and it really does require somebody who's got a, a sympathy for both sides of the equation. And, and that's one of the things that I'm trying to depict within the series that I'm doing here, and, and Osiris gives the audience, I think it's the first look at it, how I do this. It isn't 50 shades of gray. It's a thousand shades of gray. And it's very hard to determine who's good and who's bad inside of this argument. And I'd like to say thank you to Eric Anderson for giving us the first chapter in a three-book series, a three-book series about the Middle East, the Islamic Empire, and where it might be going. Thank you, Eric Anderson. Thank you, Peter. Have a good day. You too. And it's been another edition of Conversation here on 94 WIP. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Nothing left to say, but see you soon.